This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 41. Genesis 41. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to grab one. It's on one of these side uh, shelves. Uh, You'll find Genesis 41 on page 32 in those Bibles that are provided. We'd love for you to to have a copy of God's Word, especially today as we go through uh, this together. Let's prepare our hearts now and go to God in prayer. Lord, we do pray that we would look to you now for hope and for help. Thank you for your word that is before us, that is reliable, that will never lead us astray, that points not only to our greatest problem, but to our solution and Savior. And we just ask that you would simply do that now as we look at your word together. Point us to Christ. Show us Jesus in all of his glory and magnificence and beauty that we might fly to him, that we might worship him, that he would be lifted high. Lord, we pray that you would do this for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Robert Wilson was one of the uh, great professors at Princeton Theological Seminary, back when that was a faithful seminary. And Kent Hughes tells the story of Wilson coming to chapel one day to to listen to one of his former students preach. And I've experienced what that's like, preaching in chapel with a bunch of my professors around, and the sin in my heart wanting to do something really well, or at least not commit heresy. Uh, I know what that, that tension is like. But he goes and he sits down in the front row and listens to this former student of his preach. And after the service is concluded, he goes up to him and has this conversation. And he's encouraging him this way. He says, I'm glad that you are a big godder. He says, when my boys come back, I come to see them only once to see if they're big godders or little godders. And then I know what their ministry will be. Some men, he says, have a little god. And they're always in trouble with him. He can't do any miracles. He can't take care of the inspiration and transmission of the scripture to us. He doesn't intervene on behalf of his people. They have a little God, and I call them little godders. And then there are those who have a great God. He speaks, and it is done. He commands, and it stands fast. He knows how to show himself strong on behalf of them that fear him. He said, you have a great God, and he will bless your ministry. He paused for a moment and walked out. What a great encouragement. I wonder if Robert Wilson were to hang out with me or you for a week and talk with us and see the way that we live and the way that we talk and the way that we handle life, if he would come away with that same encouragement. I'll be completely honest with you. I regularly come to my Bible I come to prayer, I come to my weekly study as a little godder, a leaky bucket, 
who knows a lot of the wonderful things about God, but has somehow woken up in a default position of wondering, has he left me? So I come with that anxiety and unbelief and burdened with my sin and failure and exhaustion. But I have learned this much. God has never turned his back on me when I come to him as a child asking for his grace and his help. He is a big God. So I want to front load the application for the sermon this morning here with 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. This is, I think, the way I would summarize this passage in Genesis. Peter says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That's, I think, the main point, the takeaway from Genesis 41. Don't try to exalt yourself. Don't try to manipulate or figure out life and maneuver things on your own. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. God is mighty and powerful. He is big and strong and sovereign. He has no rival, no no president or celebrity or religious movement intimidates or controls the God of the Bible. He sits in the heavens and does all that he pleases. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And so that implies trust, not just of God, but of his timing. For at the proper time, Peter says, he will lift you up. When is that time? Sometimes we ask and we don't know. So what do we do in the meantime? Peter says, cast your anxieties, which is a given that you have trouble and worry and pain. Cast your anxieties on this sovereign, strong God. Why would we do that? Because he cares for you. This sovereign God is not far away. He is imminently with us and cares for us. Friends, that is an amazing reality. And I just, I want you to know, I want to live that way and I want you to live that way. And I think when we live that way, we're going we're gonna to be a bunch of big godders who are humbling ourselves before his majesty. And so what today is, is one long 57 verse illustration of that. Okay, that's what Genesis 41 is, is that God is big. We're continuing the story of Joseph and his brothers, and that's our guide. Humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt us, casting all our anxieties on him because he cares for us. There's there's a long passage. We're going to look at it in seven scenes. We're going to try to just work through it together as we go. So you're going to be very help, much help to have your Bible open and your heart open to to the God of Genesis 41. So let's set the context and kind of get into the first scene together here. It's the first eight verses, and I'll just summarize it by saying these are Pharaoh's dreams. And if you just look at that first phrase in chapter 41, it says, after two whole years. And that helps us to set the context and refresh our mind. Okay, where are we in Genesis Um, and particularly the story of Joseph. And it's been a wild ride for Joseph. As you know, he's been sold into slavery by his brothers. He's been brought to Egypt and and picked up by Potiphar and and then found himself in Potiphar's house being promoted to kind of the second in command, overseeing all of Potiphar's affairs. 
in this amazing turnaround, the slave becomes kind of in charge of all these things. But then when he refuses to be seduced by Potiphar's wife, he is unjustly accused and thrown into, into prison. And yet while in prison, again, he's elevated all of these things in his life prosper. He's put in charge of the prison keeper's affairs. And we see over and over, the Lord was with Joseph. And that's been the main theme of the story so far. And so when Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker then get thrown into the prison, which we saw last week, and if you missed Dave's sermon, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it. It was a really encouraging, great word. They get thrown into, into the prison, and so Joseph is caring for them, and of course they have dreams that Joseph is able to interpret for them prophetically, and what they, what they dream, Joseph interprets, and it comes about. And his only request to the cupbearer as he's, as he's lifted back up, his head is lifted up in a good way, was that he would remember him when he speaks with Pharaoh. Just remember me. Let, let him know my situation. And the last words in chapter 40, if you remember, were, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. And so just, just get, your, get your mind there. Two whole years. Joseph would not have access likely to what's going on up here in the, in the, in the palace and just think about the expectancy that he's going to get help from the cupbearer. He's lifted him up and things have gone well. And that slowly dwindles as days go on. One day turns into two and weeks and months and two whole years. Get, get in that kind of emotional place. Added to all that's been happening in his life already. This cumulative effect. Now there's two years of nothing. Silence. He's stuck. And I just want to encourage you, just, just here, just at the very beginning, we're going to pick up the pace in the sermon, I promise, but just to, just to say that we need to have a, a perspective here with God that's, that, that is long-term. We need to have a, an, a grace from God. We want to ask God for the grace to give us a long view with Him, because if you really think about it, what is two years in a life? You could probably look, look back to a period of two years and something that you think about, you maybe don't think about now. But think about it from God's perspective. In terms of eternity, what is, what is two years? God is about to, in chapter 41, come through in an amazing way. That's what this chapter is about. But it comes after suffering and trial and silence. It was that, actually, that I'm going to argue, prepares Joseph for the faithfulness that we see in this chapter that prepares him for what, he's gonna, what God has for him. And so we, we want to have our theology in place that says God is sovereign over the good and the bad in our lives. So we need to make that tangible for us when we think about our marriages and we think about our children and we think about um, the, our own sanctification. Just, just another reminder for us as a church, it's been a little over two years since we merged and became University Park Baptist Church. And I can tell you that I, I often feel the tug yesterday to have everything in place the way that I think it ought to be. And I know some of you have that same feel and expectation. But I want to invite you prayerfully to take a long view with God. Not looking at just two years, but five years and 10 years and 20 years and 150 years. Because God plays the long game and he calls us to walk with him and to play that game as well, to trust him. So after two whole years, God comes to Pharaoh with a dream and it's two dreams actually. So look at um, 
verse 1 now of chapter 41. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Now, if you think that sounds crazy, you would be right. I don't think anyone would say, oh, well, okay, that makes sense. Um, that's a very perplexing, bizarre dream, dreams. Uh, the only thing that uh, we see here is that it, it's, it's happening in a kind of an Egyptian context. So the Nile River is involved uh, and, and cows would regularly go and submerge themselves to get relief from the heat and the insects. Um, but there's these seven nice, healthy cows feeding on the grass, seven ugly ones. The word, it actually could mean uh, evil uh, come up out of the, the river and stand next to them. And this is where things start to happen that are abnormal. This turns into a nightmare. Um, and don't, so just, just pass over this idea of cows eating each other. Um, you know, I'm not sure what that looks like. If these are super, like cows with sharp teeth and, or they're, they're eating each other alive, uh, there's, this is probably a, 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 a terrible dream. And I think you'll see in the retelling of the dream as Pharaoh talks to to Joseph about it, but he, he wakes up, probably freaked out about it, and then immediately has another dream and a very similar uh, theme with these good and plump ears of grain, and then these seven shriveled ears that come, they're kind of heat shriveled up, and they consume the other. I don't know how they, I don't know if they have mouths, I don't understand how all that works. Okay, it's a dream, but he goes somehow back to sleep, but in the morning he's scratching his head. Look at verse 8. So in the morning, his spirit was troubled and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men, Pharaoh told them, and to all the wise men, Pharaoh told the dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. And so Egyptian pharaohs were thought to be as, you know, gods themselves. And, and, and so these dreams were given special attention. And, and he calls these magicians and wise men in, which are essentially pagan priests and sorcerers that are kind of there to aid Pharaoh in his understanding of these messages, give him, give him counsel. But this much is clear. Nobody knows what this is. Nobody knows what's going on in this dream. They are all at a loss. So the wisdom of men and of the gods of Egypt are useless. And this scenario should sound familiar to us. Many of these same elements, cattle, grain, famine, magical arts, uh, are going to come into play in the Exodus story, aren't they? Where, where, where we see that God is triumphing over these gods of Egypt. And there are also many connections to the book of Daniel, when another foreign king has a pair of dreams, and he's troubled, and he calls in his magicians, and they're not able to interpret what's going on until this young Hebrew named Daniel is summoned, and he comes to speak to, to the king. Okay, so there's a lot of connections that we're going to see as we go through. So now enter Joseph. Okay, how is Joseph going to come into the picture? Pharaoh doesn't even know that Joseph exists. Well, let's look at scene two when Joseph is remembered. So Joseph is remembered, and this is going to take us from verse nine to down to verse 13. So look there at verse nine. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. 
That word offense uh, is really the word sin in Hebrew. I remember what I did, my sin. I, I remember my sin. And as you recall, the cupbearer's main job was to keep Pharaoh alive. And we don't know what happened to make Pharaoh exactly upset with him and the baker, but we can speculate that it was an assassination attempt. Someone's trying to poison, uh, poison the king, and, and perhaps it becomes clear the baker was involved, and the cupbearer is, is, is responsible for, for all these things, and we see how the, the baker is executed and the, the cupbearer is, is spared. But the Lord brings Joseph to mind here at this point, just at the right time, and, and the cupbearer has the courage to carefully remind Pharaoh of what had happened. So verse 10, when Pharaoh was angry with his servants, he put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. We dreamed on the same night, and he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, servant of the captain of the guard, when we told him he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. A very similar thing happens in Daniel chapter 5. Uh, when a hand begins to appear and write on the wall and no one understands the message, Belshazzar is troubled, can't find, magicians don't know what to do, and so the queen calls out, you remember this guy named Daniel, let's call on him and see if he can help. Those connections are important for us to see and to make because the Bible is telling one story, one big story about one big God with one big message And it culminates these patterns and characters in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Savior of God's people. That's the way the New Testament authors are reading the events that are happening in their time and they're reading the Old Testament. So think about the way way that we read about the one raised up and exalted on a cross, Jesus Christ, between two convicted criminals. One who was hurling insults at him, rebuking him. The other who's believing in him, And at the very last minute, do you remember what he says in Luke 23? Jesus, remember me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. So the cupbearer forgets Joseph. Jesus does not forget. Jesus remembers. It's almost the same phrase that Luke uses here in Joseph's story. And so it's out of the pit that God is going to call Joseph to interact with the king. And we'll see that in the next scene. Scene three, we'll look at Joseph's ascent. And this takes us from verse 14 down to verse 24. So pick it up there in verse 14. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. The Hebrew men are regularly wearing beards. Unlike the Egyptians, they would have been pretty much clean-shaven for hygienic reasons. Um, Not to mention Joseph's been filthy. He's been in this prison. Much different standards for cleanliness. But just imagine the scene. This king of Egypt is now standing before this, this lowly Hebrew slave prisoner, and he's asking him for knowledge and wisdom. He himself is proclaiming to be a god. And he's impotent. He doesn't have any power. This is just a a picture for us about where true wisdom lies. And and it's not in wealth and and power. It's in God. 
We, we get a, a picture of the kingdom that is upside down from the way our world thinks and works. And so look there at verse 15. And, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream and there's no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And at this point, I think there's a temptation, and there would be for me, for Joseph, to say, yes, actually, you've got the right guy. I do have a pretty good track record at interpreting dreams. Um, and, and he does. Like, he's been used by the Lord in that. There's, there's a temptation to be intimidated by the king's palace and presence and to do all that he can to kind of save his own skin and make himself look valuable. Chuck Colson talks about the time in his kind of political career uh, when the aura, of the aura of the White House, the presence of the White House, would, would kind of intimidate visitors and his political enemies. And so he, he said this, he said, invariably, the lions of the waiting room became the lambs in the Oval Office. So, so they were intimidated and they would eventually soften. Friends, that's not going to be true for Joseph. Listen to how he responds here to Pharaoh. In verse 16, Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Joseph takes no credit to himself. He looks away from himself and at the same time puts the spotlight directly on the one true God, which would have been a very risky move. Talking to a self-proclaimed God who worships these other gods as well, Joseph is boldly declaring here, there is one true God. Literally, he says, the God is your only hope. He's the only one who can answer you. Pharaoh, you, you can't affect the future. Your gods aren't going to help you now. Your only hope is Yahweh, the one who made the heavens and the earth. He's confronting everything Pharaoh believes, everything he is, and proclaiming the truth. He's pointing to God. And I think this mindset is a grace of God born in the, the, the challenges, the darkness of the suffering that Joseph has been through. His learning to trust God. Paul says in Romans 5, suffering produces endurance. I don't think that's intuitive. I think there's a leap between suffering causing endurance that God has to, God has to work that in us. So, so for Christians, for believers, when we know that we have a sovereign God, we know that suffering is going to, it's producing something in us. It's not just random. It's not just out of control. Nothing's, nothing makes sense. No, it's producing something and something good, endurance. And endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame. And so because he has this hope, because he has this character, this endurance that comes out of slavery or out of, yes, yeah, suffering and slavery, he is able to be completely God-centered and look away from himself and humble himself. As the psalmist says, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, but we have this treasure, this gospel, this Jesus in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. It's a good thing to be remember, just to remember, if you're sitting here and you're, maybe you're not used to coming to church and, and you're looking around and you're saying, I think these people probably have their lives together, way ahead of me. You just talk to some of us and you'll know it's not about us. Trust me, it's about God. It's about the gospel. It's about Jesus Christ who saved us and is working in us now in our weaknesses. 
This is not about us. Joseph is God-centered, and I just pray that would be true for us. Now, people are going to say, hey, you just, well, this is great. This is the Bible, but you can't do this today. 2022, you can't just walk into these places and start talking about God and the Bible. But here we are, this, this self-proclaimed God, Pharaoh, now asking for help from a slave, and he's about to be very receptive to what God tells him. And I understand there's going to be another Pharaoh in, in the Exodus that is the opposite of that. We can't control how people receive the message. What we want to do is pray for fertile soil and pray for faithfulness. Pray for this kind of receptivity. Pray that God would bring about fruit as we boldly speak the truth. So, so in the next scene, that's what Joseph's going to do. He's going to interpret these dreams. Scene four, Joseph's interpretations. And we're going to look at verses 25 to 32. And I just want to start with a sidebar here because we're talking about dream interpretation. And so before we look at these dreams and these interpretations, I want to say a word about the way I think we should focus when we come to passages like this in the Bible. There are sections in Scripture that are prescriptive, telling us what to do, commands. And there are sections in Scripture that are descriptive, describing things that have happened. So we have places in the New Testament particularly that say, go make disciples of all the nations. Uh, This is what marriage is. This is how marriage should look like. This is what church is. This is how the church should look like. But there are also places in the Bible where we see amazing things described, say Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit falling and tongues speaking of every language that we don't say should be replicated for every believer who, should, who is saved. So descriptive versus prescriptive. And here what we have, and in many cases when we come to these situations um, in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, we have a descriptive section that is showing us how God is bringing about Joseph's deliverance so that he could save the nations. Joseph is, is very much pictured as a prophet here. Okay, so someone who's getting special revelation from God directly. This is not a passage about how to interpret dreams. One reason we know that is that we don't see places in the New Testament, for example, where the church is gathering and there's teaching about how to decode and decipher dreams. So in some ways, when we look at the Bible like that, it's like looking at a windshield. Instead of looking through it at the road, we just stare at the windshield. And we're missing what the point is. The point is pointing us to, what, to Jesus Christ, ultimately. Remember, in Joseph's day, there is, no, there is no Bible. God is revealing himself in various ways, through visions and direct revelations of himself. But today, we do have a Bible. And, and the Bible is trustworthy and sufficient, and it's a guide for all of life and godliness. The, the Reformation principle of sola scriptura means that all that is necessary for salvation and spiritual life is taught either explicitly or implicitly in Scripture. So that means that everything that's necessary, everything binding on our consciences, everything that God requires of us is given to us in the Bible. And that canon of revelation is closed. There's no more scripture to be written. What we have is sufficient. That doesn't mean that the scripture is going to answer every single question that you have in life. One author points out there's nothing about DNA structures or microbiology or the rules of Chinese grammar or rocket science. Okay? But all things in life must be measured by and filtered through God's infallible, inerrant, and inspired word. The Holy Spirit that lives inside of us leads us into all truth. And he'll never contradict what he's already revealed in Scripture. And God has revealed himself, particularly in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews says, Long ago, and at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, 
whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. So I'm not saying the Lord doesn't still give people dreams today. I know many, many stories of particularly folks in the Muslim world that, that have, the Lord has, has brought to, to hear the gospel through dreams. I'm saying the place where we want to go for surety and clarity is to, and to know God is through his word. And we know that God has said clearly the truth to us about himself, about who we are, and about who Christ is, and about the future, that Christ is coming again, and we must be ready. Scripture is teaching us to look to Jesus, not to be distracted by things that could turn our attention away. Sidebar, complete. Now, let's look back to the text, the interpretation, beginning in verse 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven good years, and the seven good ears are seven years. It's a little bit of a tongue twister. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the, seven east, by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is, as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume all the land, And the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. So just as Joseph said, God gave an interpretation. And Joseph is showing himself here to be like a prophet, a divine messenger, relaying God's message in a predictive way of what the future holds. And he's shown himself to be a true prophet because what he's predicted in the past has come to be. And I think this little bit about it being fixed by God and the promise that God will surely bring it about are significant for two reasons. Uh, First is just the acknowledgement of the power and sovereignty of God over all things, including famine and disaster. Uh, there, There were Egyptian gods getting their toes stepped on by this statement. So God didn't need to get permission from the sun god Ra or, the, uh, or whatever about the famine. In Psalm 105, listen to the way the psalmist writes this about the story. Verse 16, when he summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, speaking of God, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. So we see God's sovereignty there in sending, summoning the famine and also sending Joseph. All the things that went into that, God is sovereignly working over them. He says in Isaiah 45, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Our God is a big God. The economy, the weather, who's in office, who's fighting what war, which direction our culture is going, all under the mighty hand of God. And when God makes promises, they will surely come to pass. That's one thing. Secondly, I just want you to notice, because this dream happened twice, I think that's a subtle encouragement to Joseph himself. That would Because if you remember, Joseph had similarly two dreams with the same message that were kind of going after the same theme, his brothers and his parents his father's going to bow down to him well that hasn't happened yet 
But if, that, if this dream is fixed by God, that must mean my dream is fixed by God. That must mean God's word to me is still true and I can trust it. And that's a reminder for us. We should, we should just be encouraged by the faithfulness of God and trust his word. But the reality is this famine is coming and it's going to be severe. A lot of people are going to die. There's no grocery stores that if one shelf is empty, you can go to the next shelf. No Amazon, right? History shows us that this picture of cannibalism of the cows in the, in the, the grain probably reflects really real cannibalism that happened in Egypt's history when famines like this would occur. People eating each other because they were so desperate. So prosperity, then doom and death. What can be done? And Joseph is going to give counsel, scene five, beginning in verse 33, Joseph's counsel. Joseph's counsel. So look there. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store grain under the authority of Pharaoh for good in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. It strikes me that nowhere in Joseph's plans does he mention himself. Uh, He's just walking through a plan to save Egypt and really the world without concern for his station in life. Now, he does suggest a wise and discerning person would be good to put in charge of this. I don't know if that came with an ahem, you know, to that. I don't know, but it's pretty obvious. Everyone sees it. He's it. He's the obvious job. But his plan is just simple, a 20% food tax. We're going to have lots of leftover. We're going to save 20%. We're going to do it in a decentralized way in all the cities so that it's easy to store and then easy to distribute when it comes out. And you just people need to be disciplined in the plenty so they can survive during the want. But I want to just, just observe Joseph's reaction to God's sovereign fixed plan is not to go, let go and let God and do nothing. Just observe that. He jumps into action. He makes a plan. And that's just instructive for us. If our big God theology makes us lazy in evangelism or slothful in prayer or detached from a commitment to missions or the local church, we have misunderstood the God of the Bible. He has said, go make disciples of all the nations. He has said that a representative from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be saved. And then he says, go. We're to go. We're to prepare. We're to pray and share and give our lives to that end. That's what big God theology leads to. Action and risk and humility to go all in with Jesus. Friend, have you done that? Have you gone all in? Put all your chips in the middle and say, whatever happens, I'm with him. And amazingly, that's what we see from Pharaoh in this next scene. Look at scene six, Joseph's exaltation, his exaltation. This begins in verse 37. Surely someone of Pharaoh's officials is going to like raise their hand. And when he sees that Pharaoh is actually taking this Hebrew dude seriously and, and suggests, well, maybe we should, let's just be reasonable. Uh, what, what experience does this man have that we should listen to him? But this Pharaoh, unlike the Pharaoh in the Exodus, responds with complete acceptance. 
And you might say faith. Look at verse 37. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. That's amazing. <laughs> this, this, this picture of where he's been and where he's going is amazing. He began the day as a slave in prison and he ends the day overseer of Egypt. Uh, the suffering servant, wrongly accused, convicted, thrown back in the pit, rises to rule at the right hand of power. So he's seen here as, a, as a, I think, a new Adam, given, given new dominion, given dominion over the land, all of Egypt as a kind of a viceroy or a prime minister, uh, like a representative of the king. It's almost, you could say, he's made like making in the image of the king. Notice how he's dressed, verse 42. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in the garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. So Pharaoh's signet ring bears his kind of his name, his sign as Pharaoh. It's going to be a seal on all the official documents. So that authority is now given over, derived to Joseph. And he's dressed in a royal robe that communicates his place in the palace. He's given a golden chain around his neck, both probably as a gift for his service and as a sign of his value before Pharaoh. This is almost exactly the way Daniel is dressed in Daniel chapter 5. And then we read in verse 43, and he made him ride his second chariot and his second chariot. And they called him out, called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh. And without your consent, no one shall lift a hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called, and Pharaoh called Joseph's name zapheth Paniah. And he gave him in marriage to Asenath, the daughter of Pontifer, a priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. So people are bowing to Joseph. That, that, came, that sounds familiar from the dream. These aren't his family, but, but people are now bowing to him. The nations are bowing to him. He's riding second in the chariot behind Pharaoh. Uh, like Daniel, he's given a new kind of foreign name. Uh, Zapheth Paniah, which, which means something like God lives and speaks. Uh, like Adam, he's given a, a wife. Um, now, uh, she's foreign and she's, she's certainly uh, pagan. And this, this seems to be put on Joseph by, by Pharaoh, but he doesn't refuse this. Uh, now, I do think this is, this is a, I would separate what's happening here, say, from what happened with Esau in his marriage of foreign women in this way. Joseph's faith does not seem to be led astray, which was really the heart of the not marrying outside of Israel, not, not, not really ethnicity, but, but theologically, not to be led astray. So you see that especially by the way he's naming his son's Hebrew names, and we'll get to that in a second. But, but he's, he's exchanging these tattered prison garments for royal attire. Haven't robes and cloaks been a theme for Joseph throughout this story? 
uh, it makes actually a pattern for his life, kind of a, a chiasm, kind of a, a picture frame. Uh, first, he's robed by his father, this long-sleeved royal robe. He's the favored of many colors. Then he's derobed by his brothers and thrown in the pit. Then he's derobed again by Potiphar's wife, and he has to run away without his shirt on. And now he's being robed again. He's being installed as royalty, as king of all Egypt, and they're bowing down to him except for under Pharaoh. So all this, God is just working to prepare Joseph for his mission to save and redeem. But the pattern is suffering, then glory. Humility, then exaltation. And the exaltation is so that he can be savior, so that he can save people from death. And that's what we see in the last scene, scene seven. We see his provision. We get an interesting time marker there in verse uh, 46. Joseph was 30 years old. When he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and Joseph went out from the, pre, the, the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. And I think, it's, I think it's something we should take note of, that just like David, who was 30 years old when he began to rule in Israel, 2 Samuel 5, and of course Jesus, who begins his ministry at 30, Luke 3, that that. that that uh, Joseph also begins his ministry at that age. And so, so there have been all these wonderful promises, all these things that have happened, and now let's see how it unfolds, beginning in verse 47. In plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. That language of abundance should jump off at us, especially the immeasurable nature of it. Sand and sea cease to be measured. That reminds us of the promises of Abraham in Genesis 12. And so we see kind of that blessing of abundance, but we also see the blessing of seed. Verse 50, before the, the, the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Pontifera, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So even though everything around him was Egyptian, he, he, he is maintaining hope and trust in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Manasseh, just, he, you know, the root there is forget or even to forgive. And, and Ephraim, fruitful. Those, those sons are eventually going to be blessed by Jacob as the, the promise to Abraham is going to move forward through them. But just as God promised, after the years of plenty come the years of famine. And we read that in verse 53. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end. And the seven years of famine began to come. And Joseph had said, as Joseph had said, there was a famine in all the lands. But in all the land of Egypt, there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So in the midst of affliction and famine and death and darkness, God is making a way through Joseph. He provided through his chosen one. Friends, this is a picture of the gospel. Do you remember that first miracle that Jesus performed in, in Cana? Turning the water into wine. There was a problem. You might say there was a famine at the wedding. 
Jesus' mother said to him, he, or kind of encourages him to, to act, and then goes to the servants. The guests are crying out for help. And then almost verbatim, as these words in verse 55, Pharaoh's words to Joseph, we read in John 2, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. Jesus is showing himself to be the provider. He's going to later say in John 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. That's what this story points to. Because, friends, you know, there's going to be another Joseph. There's going to be another Joseph a few centuries later who's going to have dreams from God. Those dreams are going to involve Egypt. And, and by the way, his father is also named Jacob, uh, Matthew 1.16. And I just love these. These are amazing to me. And he would, he would be the earthly father of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the answer, the shape, the punchline, the last chapter of all the Bible is building toward. God the Father sent him to deal with our spiritual famine, our sin against God. We have sinned. We are in desperate need of forgiveness and restoration. That only comes through Jesus Christ. Believing that, he's, that he is who he said he is. And believing that he came to live a perfect life. And then laid his life down on a cross to pay for the sins of all those who would turn and trust in him. To purchase a people from famine and death and bring us to God. He did that by dying for us and he did that by rising for us. So just like Joseph is thrown to the pit, thrown into prison and he comes out when everyone thought that he was dead. Just like Daniel is thrown into a pit full of lions and then a stone is rolled over the entrance and sealed by the king. Everyone thinks he's going to die, but he comes out. These are nothing but previews of the main attraction of Jesus Christ stepping out of the grave alive, bodily, victoriously, publicly. And he lives and reigns and he will return. Cry out to the bread of life. Only he will satisfy you. He's calling the nations to himself. And just like when Joseph comes in the chariot and they're bowing the knee, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, King of kings, ruler of all creation. All the nations will come to worship him. We see a preview of that, I think, in the last part of these verses, verse 56. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt, to Joseph, to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. God told Abraham, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's happening in Genesis 41, and it will ultimately happen through Jesus Christ as people from every tongue and tribe and nation come to trust him. God's word is true, beloved. It can be trusted. He is a big God. And so we ought to hear this and respond by humbling ourselves before the mighty hand of God, no matter what we're going through. So at the proper time, he may exalt us, casting our anxieties on him, because he cares for us. We can trust in his power to work all things for good. We can trust in his timing to be perfect and wise. We can trust that he cares for us. We can cast all of our anxieties on him and live in freedom and hope 
looking for the return of our king. He's coming. You can bank on it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that there's so much here, so much more that could even be said in a, in a sermon. Lord, we pray you continue to give us a hunger for your word, a desire to see you in it, to worship you over it. Lord, again, continue to give us hope, we pray. Hope in Christ. Lord, we pray that we would play the long game as a body and that we would look to see you glorified in this place, that the gospel would go out, Lord, to to southwest Houston and to the ends of the earth, and we would give our lives to see that happen. Lord, give us that, that perseverance that's rooted often in the darkness and the pain, but ultimately, Lord, in your faithfulness. We thank you for it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.